Hey everyone, Gil Gross here, and it is time for another mailbag where I answer your hot takes, questions, comments, concerns, all of the above about tennis and anything else. About 24 hours ago, I posted on the YouTube community tab, and uh, your comments have built up. I also uh, wanted to do a little special initiative. Today is Friday. It is July 10th, and that should be Wimbledon semifinals day. So I felt like reflecting on what we're missing right now. I mean, obviously, you know, just to think about how different uh, at least my life is today than, you know, what it should be uh, is is definitely something to reflect on. So I did tweet, if you want to follow me on Twitter, at Gil Gross, I asked, uh, what do you miss most about tennis? And uh, I got a couple of replies that I, I wanted to read and comment on. Uh, Swagat says... Just the exhilarating feeling of watching the big three compete on the biggest stages. Also, your frequent tactical breakdowns, which I enjoy a lot. Um, absolutely. I mean, there is definitely uh, an added weight when uh, when the big three clash, especially in a major. And uh, in terms of the tactical breakdowns, yeah, I mean, it's it's definitely the the bread and butter of, of the channel. But at the same time, I am proud of uh, how how much um, I've been able to do without tennis because, you know, that, and I think I, I'm not alone. Look, this is everyone. We're Everyone's adapting. Every media company, every creator that has anything to do with sports or other sectors as well, like everyone's adapting. But uh, I, I do think this has been a, a good experience, you know, to uh, adapt to life without tennis and still create content. Nomo Perea. Says the anticipation before a big match, thinking about how each player could win. I'm losing it. Says what I personally miss most about tennis is the fact that it serves as a distraction from the boredom and crap that comes with everyday life. I really appreciate tennis and sports in general um, way more now that we haven't had sport any sports for four months. That hit me right away. Like I remember, uh, you know, it was uh, March when Indian Wells got canceled. It was early-ish March. Um, and then a couple days later, I remember it was a Thursday when uh, college, all college sports got canceled in the United States and the, uh, the NBA was actually before then. And then basically all the leagues shut down that were in progress, including the NHL. And I think, I think my first reaction was, oh, uh, I mean, we're about to find out exactly what sports mean to us. Like right now, like we're about to figure it out. And yeah, uh, what's what's the saying? Um, the heart grows fonder in absence. Uh, I I think I might have butchered that, but yeah, it's it's definitely true. And the the distraction that sports offer, especially in a time where you know the news is very relevant and honestly, in in my opinion, very exhausting to follow at this time. Um, it's uh, it would be. It's not like there's nothing else to, to help your mind drift away, but I think it's very important that everyone takes a break from their their daily life um, and all their stresses and basically shuts their brain off and gets engaged in a in a sport. I think that's very important. Um, Charles says, this is going to sound strange, but I miss dramatically adjusting my schedule to accommodate big matches played in other time zones. I miss being excited about unknown 
And for the small chance of a big upset at Wimbledon, also I miss no tie breaks in the fifth. Um, time zones, yeah. Uh, for me, that's most uh, that's the Australian Open for the most part. It's not it's not that I never do it for other tournaments, but when I think of um, a lot of the a lot of the other tournaments played, you know, deep in the Western Hemisphere, I'll just watch them on replay. Obviously, for um, for an occasion as momentous as the Australian Open, I want to watch it live. So yeah, I I haven't missed that yet because you know. If the Australian Open gets canceled, I'll miss that. It is something that you groan about when you're doing it. But again, when you can't even do it, then you kind of start to miss it. And there is a special feeling. Like, the Australian Open wouldn't feel like the Australian Open for me. Let's say, let's take the final, for example. It wouldn't feel like the Australian Open final if it wasn't four in the morning. It, it just wouldn't. We all associate these different things with each tournament. And that's what's so great about the tennis here. It's so diverse. Even the colors always change, right? You have blue in the beginning of the year, and then, you know, in Indian Wells has a certain color to it. Miami has a unique color to it, and then it gets orangey-red for a really long time, and then it gets green, and then it gets blue, and we're staring at these screens for so long, and based on what time of year it is, that dictates what color the screen is, because that's what color the court is. So uh, all of... All of these, uh, there's these small associations that we have with tournaments that we all uh, gravely miss. Okay. Let us get to the community tab on YouTube. 69 comments. Nice job, guys. Um, okay. The top comment. Oh, these are not in order. What the heck? They're somewhat in order. Okay. Well, the top comment is still on the top. Um, Jeff says, if you were on Rafa's team, would you advise him to A, play both the U.S. and the French Open, or B, play just the French? Um, I believe, do not quote me on this, but I do believe that this will be the topic on the next episode of 3, my new tennis show with Joel Drucker and Amy Lundy, uh, which I'm posting the first three episodes on this channel. After that, it'll go to... Um, a channel specifically dedicated to the show called Three, a tennis show. Shameless plug there. I do believe that's the next topic of three. So um, I, I, I do not think, look, I would probably have him play just the French. Um, and that's not about like increasing his chances to win Roland Garros. I know Dominic Team. I don't even know if he believes this. So I, I was really surprised he said this. But Dominic Team basically said, oh, you know, it'll be impossible to go far in both tournaments. Dominic Team was like, um, he said that if you go deep in the U.S. Open, it could kill your chance at the French Open. I, I really don't see that because, I mean, okay, maybe if you play every tournament, if you play all the 1,000s, yes. But if you're Dominic Team, if you want to go deep in both, just play the U.S. Open and then just, again, it's tough because Kitzbühel is after that. It's in his hometown. Uh, but then there's two Masters 1,000s events. Rest then. Rest there and, and play the major. So for Rafa, I don't think it's because he can't defend his Roland Garros title if he doesn't play... Um, the U.S. Open, because I think he can. I'm just concerned about, I would just be concerned about the body, 
and at at Rafa's age, I just I'm not sure there's you always err on the side of caution. You always err on the side of caution there. And this is going to be a weird tournament. A lot of things are going to be different. Nadal is a man of routine. And if I were him, my season, my tennis season, would be clay court season as hard as I can, all the Masters events. So so four weeks in a row, just go really, really hard. And you need to be... You need to come into that 100% rested in order to, to get through that gauntlet. So if I were Nadal, I would stay in Europe and play the French if I were on his team. That's what I would advise him to do. It's hard to skip a, a major. It's really hard. So I I don't know how this is going to play out. I, I really don't. It's, it's fascinating. It is not an easy thing to skip a major. Although players used to do it all the time. Andre Agassi, before he won Wimbledon, skipped Wimbledon. Didn't like it. And tons of players skipped the Australian Open all the time because it wasn't important. Uh, but nowadays, really difficult to skip a major. Next comment is from Tennis for Me. It is looking unlikely that Rafa and Novak will be going to the U.S. Open as they have both signed up for Madrid. But who knows yet, if they don't enter, who is your favorite to win it? And will it always have an asterisk by it? Um, well, I don't I don't know that it's unlikely that Novak's going to play. From what I've heard, Novak said, as long as I don't have to kind of quarantine, I want to play the event. Djokovic is, is, has continued to kind of play a lot of tennis. He's... He's back on the training court. He's now uh, negative again for for COVID nineteen. It seems like his uh, his bout wasn't wasn't bad at all. You know, not a lot of suffering. You know, um, so that's great. And Djokovic, it seems like he wants to play the U.S. Open. So I don't really agree with the premise here. Um, my favorite for the U.S. Open, I I continue to be. A partial of Dominic team for for this U.S. Open. Will it have an asterisk by it? Yeah, but I don't know if that's a terrible thing. I uh, I like the point that Alex Gruskin made um, when I when I had him on and we talked about this on a past Monday match analysis. Alex Gruskin of uh, Cracked Rackets, you know, with all of these crazy circumstances, no crowd, can't go out into the city. It's almost, you know, it's a bit of a tennis hunger games. And just because the just because the situation is a little bit different and just because some players might opt not to play doesn't mean it wouldn't be really interesting and special to see who comes out of this. So I'm still, uh, look, whoever wins the U.S. Open, assuming this tournament happens, it's going to be, it's going to be a great accomplishment. And if Dominic Team wins his first major... Um, at the U.S. Open, I don't think anyone will really, really take away from him. At the same time, I think people will remember that team's first major was the wacko U.S. Open, where not everyone played, and there was no crowds, and every player was staying in the same hotel. But if you win it, you win it. Ravi, who is the gutsiest of the big three? Novak is unlikely to win the French. How do you see this potential year loss for Novak in terms of the slam race? Um, okay, two questions here. First one, uh, the gutsiest, Nadal. 
Um, and I look, it's it's tough. It's tough for Novak. This has been inconvenient for Novak. Again, from what I was seeing, that man was at the pretty close to the peak of his powers. And my theory for why is because he was ultra hyper motivated uh, because it was an Olympic year. That's my theory. That's why I think Djokovic looked so incredibly great is because I think that uh, I think he came into this year with uh, an extremely motivated motivated mindset because he wanted that Olympic crown. Again, if you ask Novak, players have asked Novak on these Instagram lives, what are, what are your most painful defeats? And he continuously brings up the Olympics as his most painful defeats. A couple of losses to Murray, lost to Del Potro. These are his, his most painful defeats. He cried on the way off the court when he lost to Del Potro. So... I think that was 2012. So yeah, I mean, this is this was important to him, and and this is an inconvenience for Novak. But um, there's not much use in getting more into it other than that. You can't control it. What happens happens. The Olympics are moved to 2021, and and uh, life does go on. Best peak level you've ever witnessed. I've been asked this before. But, I mean, it's tough because, okay, I think in a vacuum, in a vacuum, like let's say, let's say you're talking about a couple points, a couple games, maybe a set. I, I do think Federer has that with uh, his serve and his shot making, right? I think Federer has that. But over the course of a year, I, I think I've been I've been pretty clear. I think 2011 Djokovic is the best kind of player I've seen over the course of a calendar year. So, who, according to you, has the highest low-level game and the best peak game ever? Who outside the big uh, the next gen has the game to beat the big three? And uh, if Roger. Did not have his forehand. Nole did not have his big movement game and flexibility. And Rafa did not have his fighting spirit. Who would be the better player of the big of the big three? Highest low-level game. So that's like the highest margin. Hmm, that's tough. That's ex that that's very difficult because I think about all of their low-level games and and you know none of none of them are it's it's not great, but. I think when Djokovic is playing really poorly, his mental kind of goes away. Or or maybe it's one leads to the other. But I think Djokovic ha has played matches where he's uh mentally checked out. And I've never I've never quite seen that happen to Nadal. Now both play with a lot of margin. The answer is definitely not Federer because Federer's lowest level game involves a lot of unforced errors. Uh so the answer is not Federer. I don't think the answer is Djokovic because his mind can can drift off. So I think the answer is Nadal. Even when he's playing poorly, even when he is at his lowest level, he's still fighting, and generally he's still making balls in the court. He's doing a lot of running. He's normally not playing the attacking tennis that he needs to. His forehand might be landing short. His forehand is not generating offense. His his serve is safe. His return is faulty, 
but he's still fighting hard and he's still making a lot of balls. So uh, my my uh, my answer is Nadal. And I don't know if there's any use going outside the big three for answering a question like this. You know, clearly they have the highest low level. If uh, if they essentially never lose early in majors, or it's a it's an extreme rarity. So, who outside the next gen has the game to beat the big three? Dominic Team, Stefanos Tsitsipas, possibly Daniil Medvedev. If Roger did not, okay, so we're taking away Roger's forehand, we're taking away Djokovic's movement. And we're taking away Nadal's fighting spirit. Who would be the best? Well, tennis is tennis is movement. So that's that's the worst thing you can take away, is is movement. If if you make Djokovic move like, uh, <laughs> if you give Djokovic um, the movement of Tomas Burdich, it's gonna be a problem. It's going to be a big problem. You're taking away Federer's forehand. Let's say you're giving him the forehand of what? Um, Zverev? Give him Zverev's forehand? Um, well, he's got so much else. He's got so much else. Now, it, again, he wouldn't, he wouldn't even be... He wouldn't even be an all-time great without a good forehand. Seriously. I, I don't know if that's a bold statement, but like it's it's a really massive part of who he is, is the forehand. If you gave him um like if you gave him a poor foot if you gave him Gaz K's forehand, you're not getting anything close to the same player. If you gave then if you took away Nadal's fighting spirit. Yeah, I mean, you're getting you're getting a great player, but you're not getting a you're not getting an all-time great player. I don't love this question. This is kind of hard. If Roger did not have his forehand versus Nole's fighting spirit. I'm gonna I'm gonna give the edge to taking away Nadal's fighting spirit. God, the answer continues to be Nadal here, isn't it? Yeah, because uh, I mean, you really you can win without a mentality like Nadal. We've seen it. It, it can happen. But if you take away Roger's forehand, there, there's just no getting around that. Um, thoughts on Rublev. I say a few of his matches recent. I saw a few of his matches uh, recently and his forehand is an absolute missile. Do you think he can be a top five player in the f future? Totally. I'm all in on Andre Rublev. I, I love his game. He... Uh, he kind of reminds me, I've, I've said this before, his forehand, it kind of reminds me of Ferrer's. He he swings as hard as he can on every ball. He generates tremendous racket speed, unbelievable topspin, great angles. Uh, he is he is ruthless in, in his aggression. He brings an, a wonderful intensity to the game, which I love. His, uh, his serve continues to get better. Uh, the, the only question is kind of like, there's a couple questions. By the way, his backhand's really good too. He can hit his backhand down the line. He can attack on, on that wing. A couple of questions with Rublev. One is I, I've never seen his fitness tested. I don't know how great his fitness is. I've just I just haven't seen it. So that's a question mark for me. And he does have a, a, a bit of a monotonous game. He doesn't have that much variety. And 
Sometimes I wonder if he doesn't have a plan B. You know, he lost to Medvedev at the U.S. Open. And I was watching that match, and I it was clear as day to me, Rublev was playing Medvedev completely wrong. He was hitting every ball as hard as he can, and all Daniil Medvedev wants is for you to hit the ball as hard as, as, hard as you can right at his backhand. That's what Medvedev wants. He wants pace. He is a master at redirecting that pace, using that pace against you. You want to take pace off the ball against Daniil Medvedev. I don't think that's a secret on tour. I think everyone knows that. Everyone slices more against Medvedev. Everyone junk balls more against Medvedev. Everyone's smart. You need to use variety against Daniil Medvedev. That is the way to go. And Rublev just, he, he just played his game. And his game just, yeah, you could say it doesn't match well against Medvedev. That's completely true. But the best players have a plan B. The best players have something else to bring to the court. My only concerns with Rublev is that maybe uh, maybe he, I don't know about his fitness, and I don't know that he has plan B, C, and D. But I love the base of his game. His ground strokes are, are really, they are elite. So I'm very excited to see what Andre Rublev does. Is tactics more or less important in doubles compared to singles, according to you? Well, I think that it's more important in doubles. Uh, because, yeah, doubles doubles is a, is a little bit more of a, a chess match because you have court positioning um, as part of the fray. And in singles, court positioning, it, it's just, it's not quite as essential and... That's not to say that it's irrelevant because it is relevant, right? What position are you returning serve from? Uh, going, how often are you going to the net? Are you taking the ball on the rise or are you hanging back and and um, playing from from behind the baseline? Are you taking a defensive posture? Or are you taking an offensive posture? These things are factors in singles, but in doubles you have you have just way more options to work with. You have a lot more tactical decision making is involved. Um, do, uh, yeah, I mean, do I want to poach, right? Do I want my, as a net player, do I want to come across the net? Do I want to fake? Do I want to stay? Do I want to go from uh, I formation or do I want to play from a traditional doubles formation? Um, on the first serve, do we want to play two back or on the return or do we want to play up? There's just, there's so, there's so much in terms of positioning that aspect is just not as not quite as prominent in singles. Andrew Williams, team looking strong. Your thoughts on him winning both U.S. and French? I don't know about French, but he's been my favorite for the U.S. Open since the year started. Hi, Gil. Someone else posted here regarding doubles play, so I would like to have your opinion regarding the question, why are other categories of play, doubles, mixed doubles, wheelchair, not as important? Is it purely because of tra traditions? Was double play ever more popular than singles? Not that I'm aware of. I'm asking this uh, with the perspective of a badminton player. Badminton is a very similar sport to tennis, and there are also five main categories, but those categories attract almost the same amount of views. I would even argue that doubles attracts more viewers because that's what most players will play at their local clubs. So in sport, why the TV networks, organizers, and fans only focus on singles? Thanks again. Great show, even without any tennis being played. That's a great accomplishment. Thank you. I appreciate it. 
Um, yeah, really good, really, really great question. And thank you for your perspective from the badminton side of things. I always enjoy badminton every, every time it's, uh, summer Olympics time. I really enjoy badminton. It's an incredible sport. Um, I've asked people, I've put up polls on Twitter. Most tennis fans will tell you that they find doubles just as entertaining as singles. And I think in the diehard tennis fan community, there is a desire to um, put doubles on a more prominent stage. And I, I really do wonder if anyone's tried it. And I think the answer is no. And I think if you look at an event like Davis Cup, I think if you look at an event such as Laver Cup, doubles has produced some of the most electric action we've seen. Hopman Cup as well. These events that showcase doubles, it works. So my response to, be, to your question would be, please, can someone... Can someone please try to put doubles um, on the same stage as singles and see what happens? Because I tend to think that some, some good things could happen there. With that being said, never get this twisted. Tennis is a star-driven sport. Tennis is about individuals. That's what drives viewership. That's what drives sponsorship money. It is about individual people. And we have seen, even, even with exhibition season, without these players at the very top, the interest in tennis is, is, can be somewhat limited. And, and it's more complicated than that, the reason why exhibitions don't get people really buzzing. But that's, that's one of the factors. So, you'd, you know, there's definitely an, uh, there's something to be said for these individuals in an individual sport being out there on their own. But I really, I would desperately want, especially the TV people, the TV. So there's, there's two uh, facets here. There's show courts. So what court is doubles being put on and what's being put on TV? Those things work hand in hand. It's kind of a, I imagine it's kind of a, a tango there between the TV people, what they're interested in, and the tournament organizers, what they think the TV people are interested in. I would love for both sides to, to embrace doubles more than they do. That's my answer. Can you name the best matches you've watched since 2003? So that's the big three era. Uh, Wimbledon 2008, Australian Open 2012. Um, I would say my favorite Masters final was Ferrer Murray in Miami 2013. Um, what are some other great ones? Um, Del Potro team at the U.S. Open a couple years back. Incredibly underrated. Uh, a really great match. Um, Vavrinka and Djokovic have played some epics. Certainly Australian Open 2014. That one I didn't watch uh, live. But they also played at the U.S. Open in 2013. And that was a, that was a tremendous match. Um, that is my shortlist. That's my shortlist.
which in your opinion is the toughest surface considering that grass has the narrowest margins and is barely played on clay has the most physicality hard is the most commonly used and hence the most competitive surface what's the toughest surface to play on is that the question uh grass i would think just because the movement you kind of have to move differently because it's a bit of a slippery surface and I think playing on any surface with a with a very low bounce, and I know the bounce has gotten higher, any surface with a really low bounce, I think that that presents uh, some some pretty unique challenges. And I think the game is just very different. Also, the return of serve. Let's not let's not diminish this. The return of serve is maybe the hardest shot in tennis. No, I mean the ball's coming between uh, on a first serve between 115 and 135 miles per hour generally. And unlike baseball and cricket, which, by the way, I acknowledge they're two exceptionally difficult sports, but unlike baseball and cricket, where you get to stand in a batter stance and the ball's going to come right in your, in your strike zone, you don't even know where the ball is going to go. You don't know if it's going to be on your right side of your body or the left side of your body. And you got to return that thing. That's crazy. Now, the, the big difference is uh, baseball, you have a round bat cricket you have flat but thin tennis you have flat but a little bit bigger but still return to serve it's the toughest shot so i would think grass where the the court is fast it bounces slow you, you can't really move like you normally move i think grass is probably the toughest surface last one unfortunately um due to age and injuries nishikori's career is starting to decline who do you think will become the number one male Asian player in five years? Keep up the good work. Hmm. Good question. Uh, you got Hyun Chung, who has strange technique and inconsistent ground strokes, but he's a really great athlete, potentially an elite athlete, and that's a really good thing in men's tennis. You also have uh, Nishioka, who I love. Um, you know, he's got... He's an extremely talented ball striker. He's got great hands, but it seems like at his um, at his stature, he will never have a serve, and uh, that'll it'll always be an uphill battle for for Nishioka. Um, I'm trying to think who else there is, and if if I had more time, I'm telling you, I'm on a tight deadline. I would pull up, I would pull up the rankings. Um, With that being said, so between Chung and Nishioka, I would say Chung. I think that if Chung figures himself out, you know, his serve isn't great. His forehand has a lot of weird things going on. Like if he could he could hone in his technique and as a result just develop more consistent uh, a more consistent ground game. His backhand, by the way, is beautiful, gorgeous. If he can make his serve and his forehand half as beautiful as his backhand, He's going to be a really, really good player because he is uh, he is an unbelievably gifted athlete. I'm holding out hope for uh, for Chung since he broke onto the scene, ever since he broke onto the scene with his semifinal one run in Australia. All right, that is it. Hope you enjoyed. Don't forget to subscribe. I will see you next time.